The following is a presentation of the Premier Dance Network. Hi everyone, Kimberly Falker here, the founder and CEO of Premier Dance Network. As the founder, I not only edit and produce each show, but I promote, market, and work directly with each host to put together top quality content for you each week. Right now, I produce eight shows and will be growing to ten within the next month. And many of you reach, have reached out to me to let me know how much you've been enjoying each of the shows. My goal is to continue to provide unique and valuable content and continue to grow the network to be a premier resource for all things dance. So first of all, thank you for reaching out to me, but I also want to talk to you about a great way for you to show your support for the eight shows on the network. It's super easy. You can pledge as little as $2 a month, and by doing this, you can become an official Premier Dance Network donor. And with each level you pledge, you'll receive a reward from me as my way of saying thank you. You can find the link right on the homepage. So if you are a fan of this show and believe in the value of growing a podcast network for dance, please consider showing your support. A little goes a long way. Just head over to premierdancenetwork.com and it's right there on the homepage. So again, thank you for considering your support. And let's get started with Barry in today's episode of Pod Chats. Hello and welcome back. Thanks for coming to chat. I am your host, Barry Corollis, and you are listening to Pod to Chat, talking dance on the Premier Dance Network. In this weekly podcast, I candidly offer educational conversations and thoughtful analysis on all things dance. With my vast background as a director, choreographer, instructor, and dancer, I'm happy to share my 14 plus years of experience with you, whether you're a professional dancer or just listening in for an insider's look into our fascinating art form. So put your earbuds in, grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's talk dance. I hope you have all been having a wonderful week. I definitely have. My guest teaching at Steps on Broadway has been an utter blast. Uh, at the time that I'm recording this, I still have two more classes, but when you're listening, I'll be completing my my last one for the time being. But I'll be looking forward to my next opportunity to teach there. Also, if anybody is in the New York area over the next couple weeks and they're interested in taking a contemporary technique class from me, I'll be teaching at Broadway Dance Center, an intermediate contemporary class on both August 7th and August 14th. That's a Sunday uh, from 7.30 to 9 p.m. So if you are interested in taking a contemporary class with me instead of a ballet class, you can join me at Broadway Dance Center then. Today, we are broadcasting from New York City, where it seems like dancers from every part of my life have been visiting all summer long. It's been great getting to catch up with my friends and to hear about what they've been up to and about their careers and personal successes. Some of these friends have been in town for vacation, but others have been here freelancing during their time off. There are a lot of freelancing gigs uh, during company dancers' layoffs, especially during the summer. Uh, but since I'm kind of known as the, the freelance guy because of my blog, Life of a Freelance Dancer, and the um, vast amount of work that I've done as a freelancer over the past handful of years, I often get a handful of questions about certain things in the field or just get asked questions about dealing with issues. Because like any other type of job that anybody can hold, there are great things about jobs and there are challenges and issues that, that arise. 
I think I offered my advice to three different dancers this past week. So instead of keeping this between the three friends of of these these three friends of mine and myself, I just figured why not share this wealth of knowledge and try to help out the community. When I started freelancing, I came from a background of dancing eight years in a unionized company. Well, it was two companies, but eight years dancing with unionized companies. So it was actually quite a shock when I started working in a more generalized format uh, that was usually not protected by union um, and often not even uh, protected or having rules that were enforced by its dancers. Experiences working with companies that use freelance dancers can range from union-like practices to all-out chaos. And sometimes it can be difficult for dancers who are used to working under the constraints of a strict contract. I say constraints like it's a bad thing, but um, I, it's not at all. The, they're protections, but the constraints of a strict contract. and. Uh, these these dancers can find it shocking and uncomfortable when they find themselves out of their comfort zone. For example, uh, one one of my first gigs was dancing with Alaska Dance Theater up in Anchorage when they had a, a pickup company, and I was known as the guy who uh, required a five minute break, or as we call it, uh, a five uh, after every hour of rehearsal. Little did I know that some people in the company thought that me asking for these five minute breaks was a diva behavior. I found this out later. Uh, but they thought it was I was acting like a diva just by requesting a five minute break at the end of every hour. Uh, but these dancers hadn't that that felt like I was acting that way. They hadn't danced with the unionized company. Um, and little did they know that it was standard in nearly every unionized American company to have a five minute break. And even in non-unionized companies, it's, it's a common practice. So I want to talk a bit today about standard setting in the studio and contractual practices for companies uh, that aren't necessarily unionized because there, there are a lot of people that are doing projects and that are starting their own companies uh, that haven't necessarily been a part of other companies um, and understand why these practices are in place. So I figured that I, I would just offer my advice on these and uh, hopefully to uh, help improve practices uh, across the board here in the US. There are a handful of full-time companies that aren't unionized. But like I was just saying, for the most part, these organizations that are picking up dancers to dance in their productions don't often have a great deal of experience in the function, the functionality of most high-level companies. I don't say this to look down at any leaders, uh, but instead because it speaks to part of the reason why this may be an issue. A lot of time, pickup companies are started as an outlet for dancers who aren't currently working in a full-time contract. Full-time contracts don't leave much time for such, <laughs> such endeavors, so they either do their gigs on their short layoffs or after they've left their company positions. What I've found in big cities is that many of the people starting companies and projects had a unique need to showcase their work. Sometimes this is post-career and other times it's because they weren't happy with the work that they were getting or they wanted to create their own opportunity. For this reason, it isn't uncommon to find companies with 
less than broad perspective on the best ways to run a studio, to create a safe environment, to execute a contract, and more. These things often aren't just understood. There's something that you have to actually see uh, execute to go, oh wow, that, that really works. So now I'm going to offer a handful of items that I feel could help <laughs> with all of the things that I just stated. I, again, I'd like to preface this with the idea that these are my thoughts and opinions. But these are my thoughts and opinions based on eight years dancing in union companies, five years dancing with non-union companies as a freelancer, three years that I had as a union representative where I, uh, I represented and fought for uh, the dancers of Pacific Northwest Ballet, and then my, my last season, one season with, the, with that company, preparing and negotiating the entirety of Pacific Northwest Ballet's contract. So this comes from a vast range of in-depth experience I've had over many years in multiple sectors of the dance world. I'm not coming at this from from a perspective of just a little bit of knowledge. I'm coming at it from the big company perspective, the small pickup company and project perspective, from a negotiator perspective, and, and at everything in between. All right, so let's, with that, let's get started. Since I started with my example of breaks, let's talk a little bit about breaks first. Uh, so it's pretty standard to get a five minute break after uh, every hour of rehearsal. This gives uh, the dancers a chance to rest uh, and reset. Uh, if a dancer needs to use the bathroom, they won't have to interrupt and ask to leave the studio. Uh, dancers are often sweating and exercising, working really hard, so uh, this gives them a chance to rehydrate. Um, and it also offers dancers a chance to eat a snack uh, for more energy so that they can be more effective as they go through the rehearsal process. It's, it's very effective having these five minute breaks and helping curb injury as well. Uh, beyond these five minute breaks, this is something that I, I've heard a lot of uh, through my work with the American Guild of Musical Artists. That's AGMA. Most people call it just AGMA. But that's the union that protects most ballet companies um, and uh, a handful of uh, actually many opera companies as well. But it is generally suggested if you are going to hold a full day of rehearsal that the dancers should receive an hour break after three hours of rehearsal. In fact, research actually shows that most dancers, they get injured during the fourth hour of rehearsal. So at P&B, for instance, we always had an hour for lunch after our third hour of rehearsal. Now, I know that a lot of pickup companies and projects and whatnot, uh, they don't have the ability really to offer full breaks during certain points because they, they have limited budgets and they maybe they only have four hours of rehearsal and they don't want to cut out that fourth hour of rehearsal. Um, so if you can't do this, it, it would be most effective if you could break up your rehearsals into groups so that dancers do have an hour off at some point, um, but you don't waste time or uh, you don't utilize your full rehearsal time. But it is a common practice uh, for this. And most companies that don't have access to union don't know that they've done a lot of research and that majority of dancer injuries do happen during the fourth hour of rehearsal. So that practice is very common across the board. Alrighty, next I'd like to talk about company class. So 
company class <laughs> in most unionized companies, it's not mandatory. Uh, we used to joke <laughs> when I had danced with PNB that it was mandatory optional. Um, pretty much they couldn't force you to come to class, but <laughs> uh, we knew that casting was taking place during class and that if you missed enough classes that uh, eventually it would become an issue. But most uh, unionized companies, they don't pay their dancers for classes, so they can't technically force the dancers go to, to go to class uh, unless they pay them. So most companies that I know, ballet and contemporary companies, they provide a ballet class in the morning. Uh, that's about an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and a half uh, hour, an hour and a half uh, length in time. Um, I know that it might seem weird that a ballet class would be provided for a modern or a contemporary company, um, but the great thing about having a ballet class is it hones in on technique um, and it also provides a structure that's been developed to kind of wake a, body, a dancer's body and sense of awareness up from the ground up. This is not to say that some companies don't have uh, other types of classes to warm their dancers up, but this is just most common everywhere that I've been, whether it's auditioning for Hubbard Street or teaching the, the dancers at Koresh Dance Company um, their morning warm-up. So it's, it's, a, it's a common thing. Um, I did dance with a company a couple of years ago, and we had ballet class three days a week, and then we had <laughs> sort of a... I don't know how best to put this, but sort of a rip-off of Gaga class? Uh, that sounds horrible, but that's the best way I can put it. Um, and it became challenging for us because we were doing essentially a, a guided improv without even having a, a basic structure. So for the rest of the day, nobody really felt fully warm. Nobody felt like they had actually like stretched and uh, engaged their muscles. So um, we eventually ended up having a conversation and getting a, a bar put in, uh, like a, a ballet bar uh, executed before we went into that, that work that we did. Um, also about company class, while most dancers are in class every day and take a majority of class, some days dancers miss class uh, or they, they end class early and this is for a variety of different reasons. A younger or less experienced dancer may not understand the cues of their body and their mind yet, so they might need a little bit more guidance when it comes to taking class, how often they take class, what they do in class, where they finish class. But most dancers with experience know that their body may not function properly uh, with in, in class uh, and throughout the day when their body is still overly exhausted from the day before, or maybe they have a certain teacher that just doesn't jive with their needs. Maybe they're coming back from an injury and one teacher wants you to do everything full out. Um, maybe somebody's shins are particularly sensitive or they've had a shin injury and they know that they shouldn't be jumping unless it's, uh, or they can't jump every day. There, there's so many different reasons. It It's really a tricky one. Um, to, to figure that out, but um, I think that most dancers that get to a professional level, they understand what they need, and uh, I think that there just needs to be a bit more respect that dance, and, and actually, less, not even so much respect, but trust in dancers that they they know what is is good for their body, um, if not best, um, and to offer 
kind and thoughtful guidance if you are going to suggest a dancer or push further in class, especially if they have a full six hour rehearsal day. I would suggest to any leaders in this studio that if somebody isn't in class very often, and say they're missing class a lot or they're stopping early to just check in with those dancers um, and ask them why they're missing and if, if there is a, a big issue, I just ask that you handle this personally, individually, so that uh, you're not calling people out and embarrassing them in the middle of class because there, there likely is a good reason why they, they are uh, leaving things out or uh, skipping one out of five classes a week. Uh, so just check in with your dancers. I think that having a constant dialogue is really important. All right, let's talk next. This is in no particular order, um, but let's just talk next about uh, building up to running a work in rehearsals. I know that many choreographers and directors feel the need to get all of the material out uh, for a, a work and then to run it, but they also need to recognize and understand the value in breaking down material, exploring sections, building up stamina, and more prior to running a work as a complete run. First and foremost, people shouldn't be running a ballet the moment all of the material is out. And the main reason for this is to prevent injuries. The rehearsal process is in place to allow both physical and mental digestion of material. And it, it seems obvious that a dancer requires stamina to fully execute an entire work. But a lot of people at the front of the room don't necessarily recognize that people can also injure themselves if they aren't mentally prepared. And I'm not saying that they haven't prepared themselves, but just that they're not mentally prepared with the material that they've been given. For instance, if a partner runs at a man and the guy forgets which lift comes next, you have a potential injury on your hands. Uh, if a dancer goes for that tricky maneuver and hasn't moved the force of their body in the right direction uh, at that right moment, you also have the potential for an injury. We break down material and build it up through repetition in order to create physical and muscle memory. Uh, which is that the same thing? I, I think of physical <laughs> memory as like the, the steps and muscle memory to not have to think about the steps. Um, but as both of these grow, we start to tie sections of the work together in order to build the work. So say that you have six sections, you run one, two, three, four, five, six. Then maybe you run one, two, then you run three, four, then you run five, six. Then maybe you do one, two, three, three, and then four, five, six, and then so on from there, one, two, three, four or three, four, five, six, and then you throw the whole work together. You kind of want to think of rehearsals like a quilt made from patchwork. Each patch is created separately, then when you feel comfortable that they're all prepared and ready, then you start to tie them together into a beautiful piece of art. I've been in too many studios as a as a freelance artist where as soon as the material is taught, the they just want you to run the piece and see what the final product is. But really, dancers' bodies don't last as long as many other people's careers, and we want to have dancers having the longest careers as possible, and this is one way to really protect these dancers' bodies. This is a rare one, but I just wanted to touch upon it. Um, but really, dancers should not be rehearsing 
or even having an entire workday, including performance, for more than six hours. And I know that there are times that there need to be exceptions to, to this consideration, but I, I, let me put it into perspective for you. If you think of most people's work days, at least here in the US, they work seven and a half hours and then they have a half hour for lunch. So it's an eight hour work day. There really, in my opinion, isn't much reasoning to holding anything longer than this beyond an emergency situation for dancers. Uh, they should not be working beyond that daily. If you account for an hour and a half for class at the beginning of, of the day, and then six hours of rehearsal, that equals seven and a half hours. So if you're thinking of rehearsing dancers for seven and a half hours and having them take class, that's actually nine hours uh, to be physically active, which I mean, dancers are already doing so much with their bodies and their minds. I think that seven and a half hour day with including class and rehearsals is more than reasonable. When it comes to workers, regular workers working this day, it, it seems like a good length. But the difference here is dancers aren't sitting on their, their rear ends staring at a computer. They're being wildly physical and they're tapping into their emotions uh, on a regular basis in the studio. So be kind to your dancers again. <laughs> Just make sure that they're, they're being taken care of as best as you can. That should always be, of course, the end product is what we're looking for that's on the stage uh, or in whatever performance you're doing. But we, we really need to keep an eye out for our, our dancers. All right, the next one on my list, <laughs> this one, this one's a biggie. It's a, it's a big one. Promise of pay. And this is one of the one of the items that uh, one of my dancer friends recently reached out to me for advice on, and this one's really for both directors and dancers. Get a contract signed with clear terms. All right. I mean, if you don't have anything in writing and something goes wrong on either on either side, if if a director doesn't pay a dancer or if a dancer chooses to. Uh, drop out of a performance or rehearsals um, and you don't have anything signed, there's really no way that you can uh, resolve the situation uh, unless you're able to get a, a better line of communication going. So from here, let's talk about the ways that a dancer can be paid. There are actually a few, a few different ways that I've seen dancers get paid. Um, and I wanted to offer you a what what these these options are and I think I've been paid almost every one of these ways but uh, let's just get through these so okay a dancer can be paid weekly um, they can be paid after the final performance and they can be paid at a mutually agreed upon date after the show has already taken place I feel that weekly pay should be given for any period that involves more than one week of rehearsal and production. And really, this is more for the protection of the dancer on the dancer's side. Um, and make sure that they don't really get screwed over for their work if something goes wrong, like an injury. Um, if you're rehearsing with a company for five weeks and you are only getting paid per performance, uh, you could have put in four and a half weeks of effort and then gotten injured right before the performances happen and you're not going to necessarily be owed all of the money for the work that you put in because you're getting paid per performance, not per rehearsal or per hour or per week. Um, so I, I like this way the best if you're doing anything that, uh, any work that lasts longer than a week. 
Um, <clears throat> getting paid after a performance series is pretty common when it comes to freelancing. Um, especially when they're brought in already knowing a work or if there's a really short rehearsal period. Um, again, usually I would, when I, when I freelance, this is usually what I do when I, uh, will only be there for a week or less. When it comes to paying your dancers after the fact, I feel that, uh, this is the least. <laughs> this is the least common way, and it's also one of the most frightening ways. Uh, it makes me feel iffy about things. But there are some times that this uh, is acceptable. Um, if a project is young and or really small, and they're pulling money from ticket sales, uh, this could be an appropriate way to get paid. Also, a lot of times companies uh, or projects, they're, they're getting, they're able to put their work on because they've been, they've won a grant. So if a, if a grant gets delayed and they haven't received that money yet, um, this is also an acceptable time to pay your dancers well after uh, the day that they've performed. But this all needs to be in writing and uh, it, it needs to, you need to know when you're getting paid. I, I know that we all want to put our creative ideas out there and to utilize inspiration as soon as it comes. But if you aren't sure if you can pay your dancers, you don't belong in this business. When dancers go unpaid, you aren't just insulting their professionalism, but you could be jeopardizing their ability to put a roof over their head, food on their table, or to maintain their health insurance so that they can take care of the wear and tear that's been put on their bodies. So I, I'm really, really adamant about this. I feel very strongly about this. If you're not sure how you're going to pay your dancers and, and you put contract terms that say, oh, I can't pay you till I get a grant two weeks later, you need to follow through with that because... It's it's at this point it's not just about art it's about livelihood and it, it comes it, beyond the art it comes down to being a good person because if somebody else puts you in in a position where you couldn't pay your rent or you couldn't pay uh, for food or you couldn't take care of yourself I think that you would probably <laughs> feel a little bit differently if you were put in that position so I, I just really want to stress that you really need to make sure that dancers are getting paid fairly when you can. Otherwise, delay your art and find better ways to, to get the funding that you need to, to put on your productions. All right, now that I got that one done, sorry, that's probably one of the <laughs> the ones that I'm most passionate about. Uh, but uh, let's, let's move on from that. So next, let's talk a little bit about costuming. Um, most dancers feel safest when they know what they're getting themselves into. Um, I think that that goes beyond just the dance world, but dancers specifically, uh, they, they really feel that. Companies generally have stage rehearsals and even have a few studio rehearsals uh, if costumes are overly tricky. Um, but they have these where costumes are available to dance in to sort of test out, especially if it's partnering, to like feel what the fabric, if it's slick or if it's uh, really sticky or over like heavy or whatnot. Um, most unionized companies don't force dancers to wear costumes over and over and over again from the beginning of the process. Um, but some are a little more aggressive in this practice. Um, the one place that I have encountered a, a major issue when it comes to costuming is with footwear. Uh, after rehearsing a work for six weeks for production on a freelance gig, the choreographer decided to give all the dancers socks to put on over their ballet slippers a half hour before the start of dress rehearsal. 
Um, it was a really challenging six weeks with uh, a range of issues that we had to deal with. Um, and unfortunately, this was the straw that broke the camel's back uh, for us when it came to dancer safety. One of the most important things for dancers to know is how their feet will interact with the floor. So if you are considering something other than ballet slippers, point shoes, uh, bare feet if that's what you're used to dancing in, or even socks, um, then just make sure you give the dancers an appropriate amount of time to test out what it will be like when they're dancing on a different texture or surface. Uh, I mean... If a dancer is going for a, uh, to do a step and they have too much friction, they could twist an ankle, um, pop a knee, <laughs> they tear something in their knee. If a dancer, uh, if it's too slippery and they're not used to it being too slippery, they could fall and they could hurt themselves. Or if they're partnering somebody, they could drop them if they slip and fall as well. So this really, it, it sounds minor, but these things are... Uh, they're important, and the reason that unionized companies have different rules in place and written down and enforced, it's really just because a dance career is so short. So we need to do everything as a community to make sure that we are protecting our dancers so that they can have the longest career and share share their, their art with us and to give us as much joy and inspiration and everything else that they have to offer as possible. Alrighty, I have a, this is a long one, I didn't expect it to be so long. I have a couple more, but we're going to keep on going, so I hope that you're, you're here staying with me, with me and you're enjoying all of this. Um, so the next one I have on my list is uh, expectations of dancers outside of the studio. Most unionized companies have to get activities that take place out of the dance studio or performance hall or rehearsal hours uh, approved by the union before they happen. Or they have to go to the individual dancers and ask them to volunteer for speaking, showing up at events or more. Or they have to pay them. Um, while I do agree, uh, being the face of a dance company, that a lot of these duties should be considered a part of the dancer's job, if you aren't paying them, it should truly be up to them uh, to take it into consideration if it's after rehearsal hours. Um, for instance, I love talking to Pacific Northwest Ballet's Young Patrons Group, which was a donor, a, like a young 31, uh, sorry, 21 to 39 year old uh, donor development group. Um, it really, we, we spent a a lot of time educating that age group and uh, teaching them to love the ballet. Um, I was actually liaison for that that group for over five years. Um, and whenever they had an outside event uh, for the ballet, I was there. I just loved to interact and I, I considered it part of my job, but I didn't get paid for it and I enjoyed it and I actually made a, a bunch of friends uh, that I'm still friends with today outside or, uh, from that group. Not only did I feel like it was valuable to the company for me to be a part of that, but it was actually valuable for me as well. But <laughs> in another instance, when I danced with Oakland Ballet, for the particular gig that we were doing, we were uh, collaborating with these two awesome guys. They were turfers, which uh, essentially means taking up room on the floor. And these were those guys that would... Uh, they're like buskers, which they like perform on the streets. They would go onto the BART and they would perform on the streets and they would uh, put on shows and then they'd collect money after their shows. It was really cool stuff. But we were actually expected to do the exact same thing as they did. And we were expected to do it outside of rehearsal hours. 
We performed on concrete in front of the steps of Oakland City Hall. Uh, we performed at the Art Murmur, which is like a first Friday art walk um, in art galleries, multiple art galleries without any rehearsal, without any restrictions. We had people at these art galleries walking through our performances. And uh, we were even supposed to perform on the BART, which is their elevated subway system. But luckily that got canceled at the last minute. Um, while these activities took place after long full rehearsal days, we received no additional compensation and no relief from our regular schedule. I do think that certain activities should be expected from dancers, but I just ask you to keep in mind that dancers are also humans, as I've said before. <laughs> We're not workhorses, and we need a chance to rest and to relax and to to be able to prepare ourselves so that you get the best product that you get. It's a reciprocal relationship. All right, next, let's talk about studio and stage conditions. Um, generally, union temperatures are between 68 and 72 degrees. Uh, it should be a best effort thing to, to maintain that. Um, when Pacific Northwest Ballet performed at the Vail uh, International Dance Festival, we performed at an amphitheater outside, and obviously you can't really control the temperatures there. But uh, when there was a thunderstorm that passed, it was August, but a thunderstorm passed through and the temperatures dropped into the 50s, you could see dancers' breath. Uh, we actually had to have a meeting whether we were going to hold the performance, and the agreement was that there were these heat lamps above the stage that had to be turned on, um, and if, a if any dancer felt too cold to dance uh, in, in their outfits, because we were doing rubies and square dance, so it was just leotards and tights for the ladies, uh, and tights and tops for the men, um, they were allowed to wear warm-ups. Nobody did, but it was an option that was available. So I'd suggest if you can't provide an appropriate temperature for rehearsal space, you should let the dancers wear warm-ups if it's too cold or to you should increase your breaks for water and maybe even look into getting fans if it's too hot in the studio. I know that this isn't always possible, but I'm just asking the dance world to do to, to use their best efforts to, to really make an actual uh, an actual strong effort to, to make dancers feel like they're comfortable and appreciated. Uh, if you aren't rehearsing on sprung floors, I honestly don't believe that you should be having your dancers dance. Dancers' bodies only last so long. The better that we treat them, the longer they last. And in the end, dancers are human beings that will have to live their lives with aches and pains well beyond their careers. So make sure that they're dancing on sprung floors. My last big freelancing gig, which was two years ago, we did not have sprung floors for the entire six weeks that we rehearsed. And that injury has is, is been staying with me for years and I still have issues with it and I haven't really performed because of it. And I, I, I blame those floors as a big, big reason that I, I suffered that injury. I, I think that having dancers rehearse regularly on unsprung floors, is, it's just abusive. So say what you want, <laughs> but I, I, I am evidence of that. I know that companies can't always afford to purchase sprung platforms for the stage, but rehearsal conditions should be without should have sprung floors without any questions. Again, if you can't provide this, I don't think you should be uh, be holding your your project. And I don't say that because it's a it's like a negative thing. There there are so many people that want to 
put their art there, but we have to make sure that we're doing it with all of the resources, not some of the resources. Dancers should come before your ideas, your ideas here, um, because your ideas don't go home hurting. Dancers do. Uh, continuing with the floor thing, as for a slippery floor, do everything you can to help solve this common issue. It's pretty across the board. Um, whether you have your dancers dipping their slippers or their shoes uh, in water that's on a damp cloth, we joke around calling that Russian rosin. Um, also, if you can get rosin, like real rosin for the floors, or even uh, you can wipe your floors with this substance. I, I think that... I don't know who sells it, but I'm sure that Harlequin uh, Floors sells it. But they have a substance called Slip No More that's supposed to help with uh, how slippery floors can get. Um, but whatever you do, just try to find a way to keep your dancers safe. If the studios are too slippery, try to build uh, the most dangerous parts off point if you have your dancers in point shoes. Um, and wait until they're really comfortable to, to put the point shoes on. Um, and then once you're on stage, again, try your best just to do everything that you can to make dancers comfortable. Studio floors and stage floors are really one of the most difficult things to maintain. So this is really, again, a best effort type of situation. Alrighty, next, we are going to talk about scheduling. And this is actually different across all union companies. I've, I remember uh, hearing from some friends with Boston Ballet when I was dancing at Pacific Northwest Ballet, and I was like, oh, you guys are rehearsing on a Sunday. That's odd, uh, when there wasn't a performance. But um, Or at PNB, if you, we were in a performance on a Sunday, um, but dancers were off of that performance, they could also rehearse that evening. It was very complicated. So it's different across all unions. But... At PNB, we had to have our schedule solidified 40 hour, 48 hours in advance. I know other companies do 24 hours, I, and I understand the need for fluidity in a schedule, especially when you're working on new choreography, because sometimes you need to see a, a choreographer needs to see what they uh, are able to accomplish in a day, and then they want to be able to create their schedule for the next day based off of what they they did that day before. Um, just try to respect that dancers need to be prepared for their day that's coming up. Whether it's they need to sew that extra pair of point shoes, if they need to carry an additional snack because they'll be in the studio longer, or uh, if they want to bring a TheraBand to do exercises while they aren't being utilized, or even more importantly, if you're not planning on using a dancer for a couple of hours, maybe they can schedule that physical therapy appointment that keeps them from getting injured. Um, if you can't give a day or two notice, I, I always believe that schedules can be given at least the evening prior to rehearsal, and not I wouldn't say at like midnight, I'd say like dinner time. <laughs> uh, but this is all about preparation, and dancers work so much more efficiently when they come into rehearsals prepared. A lot of this stuff, it, it, it comes down to efficiency. Um, again, the dance world is often underfunded, so if you can use a lot of these roles to run your uh, projects and companies more efficiently, um, you'll actually be saving money in the long run, preventing injuries, making sure that people are prepared and not wasting time in the studio. It's, it's all about efficiency. All right, just a couple more. We're almost there. Dancing full out. <laughs> the expectation of dancing full out. One of the biggest challenges across the board for dancers is being acknowledged as professionals in rehearsals. Uh, we're trained to remain submissive, to work hard, and more, which really is the idea of always being a student. Uh, but this often leads dancers to feel like they're always looked at as that child just trying to prove themselves. Of course, dancers should mostly be dancing full out. I'm not trying to take away from that at all. 
but there are times that a dancer needs to dance under or mark a little bit, especially uh, if, you're have, if you have performances later that in the day. If you always expect the dancer to dance full out, especially if you're holding long rehearsal days, you're going to be uh, that much more likely to have to deal with replacing a dancer due to injury. So I just suggest be smart, have high expectations, but also be respectful, respectful and sensitive to your dancers. And don't be afraid to talk to your dancers. <laughs> I say this all, all the time. I think I said it three or four times already. Don't be afraid to actually have conversations with your dancers and see what they need. Sometimes they need to be pushed and they don't even know it. But sometimes they need to take a step back and, and prevent themselves from getting that injury. So speaking of injuries. <laughs> uh... There are injuries are a difficult one because some injuries are pretty obvious. Somebody sprains their ankle, it, it uh, swells up, and you're you know that they're out. Um, but then other people like me have had back injuries where you can't see the swelling um, and you can't tell if a dancer is being overly dramatic or if they are uh, truly in great pain. Um, so. Be weary about forcing a dancer that seems like they're hurting into dancing beyond their threshold. Um, you really just want to make sure that you're creating an atmosphere in the studio where dancers feel like they can speak up about things that are bothering them because they're going to be a lot less likely to hide things from you if they feel like they can talk about it and you'll have a better idea of where things are and hopefully it will actually prevent you from having to deal with that surprise injury that comes out of nowhere. Maybe a dancer had uh, was having a stress reaction and they were too afraid to have a conversation and lo and behold they end up with a stress fracture and they can barely walk. So again, make sure that there's a safe positive environment in the studio where things like this can be talked about and handled. Alright, we're, we're at the last one, finally. This one's an important one for freelancers uh, and directors and choreographers that are working with freelancers. To 1099 form or to W-2 form, the tax forms that you have to fill out when you are going to be paid or when you are going to pay somebody. Uh, it's, such a, it's such a big one for freelancers and I know that uh, there's a lot of confusion with this one. Uh, a W-2 is generally used uh, when you are employed by a, a, a company. It, these forms are given when taxes are going to be taken out, which, uh, <coughs> excuse me, um, but when the tax, when you're going to have taxes taken out, when you have to pay into uh, Medicare, into Social Security, um, and all of those things. If you're on a W-2, they have to do that, and they have to report you as an employee, um, which means if you get injured, they have to provide workers' compensation for you. Um, if you are an independent contractor, you generally will sign a 1099, which means that the company is hiring you to perform whatever services you provide, not that whatever they want you to do. That, that's not completely clear. Um, but if, if an employer says, I'm contracting you to dance for 15 weeks and you are exclusively mine, they would, might give you a W-2, but uh, with 1099, it's you're, you're providing your own personal business, essentially, to them. Um, 
if you are on a 1099, that means that they're not taking out taxes, they're not paying into uh, Medicare or Social Security or workers' compensation, so they're not responsible for providing those things for you. Also, it's because they're not taking out taxes, um, you will have to report that income to the, the government and you are going to actually have to pay those taxes. And generally, just a little heads up, I'll probably talk about this in a future podcast, when it comes to paying taxes as an independent contractor, um, you have to pay quarterly taxes. So I believe it's January, April, what's after that? That would be September and then well, yeah, that's somewhere, somewhere around those I might have skipped one. But you have to pay quarterly taxes and if you don't pay all those quarterly taxes by January 15th, you could be penalized um, because the government expects you to be uh, constantly paying taxes like, a, like an employer would be throughout the year. So if you're an employer and you're hiring somebody for a short period of time and you don't want to give them those benefits or you don't actually provide those benefits, you should not be offering a W-2. You should be offering a 1099. If you're a dancer and somebody offers you a W-2, and you're only working with them for a couple of weeks and they're not taking taxes out, they're not doing all those other things, do not sign a W-2. It is incorrect. Whew. Okay, that list is over. That was a long one. Okay, I know it sounds like there are always a great deal of items that directors and employers don't understand or that they don't enforce that are on this list. But just remember, this is a comprehensive grouping of items that I've come up with uh, or that I've heard about. It's, this is my own, based off of my own experience. Companies often function certain ways for certain reasons, so don't feel like these items are an end-all, say-all for the perfect way to run a company. I just hope that by putting this stuff out here on the interwebs, <laughs> it will help offer advice to help keep the dance world running more efficiently. If anybody ever needs to reach out to me for advice on items like this, I am more than happy to consult for you. You can easily reach out to me by contacting me on my contact page on my website at www.barrycorollis.com. Again, that's www.barrycorollis.com. Uh, and just a little plug here, you can always reach out to me on there as well if you want to become a sponsor for our podcasts, uh, if you want to book any master classes in ballet or contemporary technique uh, for choreography or speaking engagements. There we go. We made it. I hope you enjoyed listening in and talking dance with me. If you enjoyed this chat, please feel free to share, rate, and review our podcast on iTunes. Every bit of extra visibility helps keep these podcasts running. And if this didn't fulfill your dance fix, check out my sister podcast on the Premier Dance Network. New hosts from your favorite dance companies are being added monthly. If you want to connect with me to see where I'm choreographing, teaching, and what I'm doing in my everyday life, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram where my name is B. Carolus, or Twitter at Bariscos. Also, be sure to subscribe to my blog, Life of a Freelance Dancer, where I've been writing about working as a freelance artist for over four years. I also have two YouTube channels, B. Carolos, featuring my choreography, and Core-ography, featuring my choreographic web series that tells the life-defining stories of professional dancers through revealing interviews and choreography. Thanks for listening in to Pod to Chat. I hope you return next Friday to talk dance with me, and remember to go out and support your local dance scene. <laughs>